All right, so let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. It's rich, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Do that tonight, Lord God. Teach us, show us who this Jesus is that we have been called into covenant with. And, and I pray, Father, that he would be displayed for all the world to see, not only by our lives, but by our words as well. God, so teach us today who your son Jesus is and all of the implications of these titles that we're going to be looking at. In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen. Amen. So a little boy or two little boys are in the, the master bathroom and there's this bathroom scale on the floor and one boy turns to the other and he says, what's this? He says, well, that's, that's the bathroom scale. And he says, bathroom scale? How does that work? And the guy shrugs his shoulder and says, I don't know. All I know is that when you stand on it, you either get really mad or you start crying. <laughs> Good theology should help us weigh what is truth and what is not. As we go through this second trimester, we want to know the truth, but we want to know it because there is so much falsehood out there. Now, you know that I rarely do this. I rarely drop names. I'm going to do that tonight with this particular gentleman because of the book that he has put out, and it can be very deceptive. And, and I'm, I'm going to Try to be as gracious as possible, and I'm going to say the reason why this gentleman wrote the book the way he did and said what he did was to, was to sell the book, because his theology is bad. He, he doesn't cross his T's and dot his I's, and the gentleman's name is John Hagee. His book is In Defense of Israel. Um, the reason why I'm concerned about this is because in the book he says, Jesus did not come to the Jews proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. John Hagee uh, said that. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay, I, no. John Hagee said that Jesus did not come to the Jews to proclaim himself to be the Messiah. And in doing so, we, and as a matter of fact, Jesus rejected that title Messiah, and therefore his conclusion is lending itself to the title in defense of Israel, he says, Jews cannot be faulted for what was not offered them. In all fairness, he defines Messiah as a political leader. Well, I, I want us to, to realize that a serious mistake is made. Did the Jews believe that the Messiah was going to be a political leader? Yes or no? Yes, they did. That does not mean that Jesus did not offer himself as the Messiah. The reason why we don't find himself proclaiming up and down the street, I'm the Messiah, I'm the long-awaited Messiah, is because they did have that misunderstanding. However, Jesus did present himself as the Messiah. The woman at the well, she asks Jesus uh, you know, questions about this living water, and, and then she says, well, when Messiah comes... He will explain everything. And Jesus says to the woman, the one who is speaking, no, he says, I who am speaking to you am he. Jesus clearly accepted himself as the Messiah. And she even used that term. And in parentheses, it says that is the Christ. So it gives us both the Hebrew and the Greek term Messiah, which means what, church? 
What does Messiah mean? Anointed one. And Christ means anointed one. Okay, very good. So, also, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter volunteers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus follows that by saying, Matt, Peter, you are so wrong. You're spreading heresy. Okay, no, he didn't either. He said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my heavenly father did. Okay, he's, he's saying, bingo, you've got it right. Um, when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, they said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? And he said, yes, I am. Okay, so very clearly, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. But it's on this premise that John Hagee um, begins to talk about how the... Let me be careful here. He begins to talk about how the Jews do not need to have us evangelize them. And he gets into what's commonly called dual covenant theology. I'm actually going to be talking about that this Saturday in a sermon series. But he denies that he believes in this, but he teaches it. And I'm just only saying this. And by the way, he pulled the book off the shelf and he wrote, rewrote portions of it because he thought, well, maybe I didn't make myself clear enough. No, actually, John, you didn't make yourself clear enough at all because you didn't follow the script. The script is the scriptures. And it's just very clear. It's very important, especially as we get into the concept of the Messiah, because Jesus does not base his definition of Messiah or Christ on what the Jews think, but on what the Bible teaches. Okay? And so that's very, very important. Jesus actually did not use that title, Christ or Messiah, much because of this misunderstanding. He would prefer to have used the term and then redefined it for them. But Jesus didn't teach that way. Many times he dangled the truth out there, and, he, and in essence, he did that so that people would seek him, would want to know, so that someone like a Nicodemus would come to him, albeit in the nighttime, so no one would see who's coming, and, say we, and, and start asking him questions. Curious, you're a miracle worker. We know you're sent from God. And, and Jesus cuts right to the chase, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Okay, let's just get that straight up front. So as we go through this trimester... Uh, theology. We want to be able to know truth because there is a lot of error out there. Let's understand, though, that not everything in Scripture is clear, and so we need to approach it humbly. All right? I, I wrote, I, I diagrammed this in the first day of class, and I'm going to diagram it again. Many times, Scripture teaches two truths such as the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man or what some would call free will as long as we just define what we mean by free will and as we as we talk about the sovereignty of God or, or as scripture talks about the sovereignty of God as it talks about the responsibility of man sometimes things can get rather confusing now we've talked about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and we know that the future is set and if the future is set then what does that do to man's responsibility and i <laughs> Duct tape is not everything it's cracked up to be. Ugh. 
No, I, I think we're going to be okay here. It's just, it, it, it will work. All right. And many times, because our understanding is limited, and this right here is the limit of our understanding, we look at the intersection here and here, and this disparity or this difference says to us, this is illogical. This doesn't make sense. Something must be wrong. So here's what typically will happen. Those who strongly want to emphasize the sovereignty of God, there can be a tendency to do this so that it makes sense. Let's take these scriptures that refer to man's responsibility and let's bend their, the understanding and let me explain it to you in a way that it makes sense, but it ends up doing damage to the verse itself. Those who want to so strongly emphasize the responsibility of man can sometimes do so in taking those scriptures that talk about the sovereignty of God and bending them so that in their minds, okay, now it makes sense. And our problem is, we must at points say, Deuteronomy 29, 29, declare this truth, that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children. There are certain things in Scripture that are revealed to a point, and we need to allow them to remain there. And many times, this right here, I'm not going to call it illogical, I'm going to call it a mystery. Now, some of us may understand this a little better than others, but the truth is, in the mind of God, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example that lends itself to our study tonight, and that is that Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Jehovah's Witnesses have a real problem with this. They say, let me just tell you right off the bat that that doesn't make sense, because if God is infinite in everything who he is, how can Jesus, who is bound in human limited flesh, be God? And as a result, you must have this sense of dichotomy within Jesus that maybe his spirit is God and his man is flesh, or, or his flesh is man. And that was a heresy that started off in the early church that was soon corrected, and they soon came to this conclusion, no, Jesus was fully God in his human form, and yet he was also fully man. So that it wasn't that his body died because it was man and his flesh rose his spirit rose to be with the father because it was god no because jesus jesus body even as he was incarnated he was god you can't splice and dice jesus because then they start coming up with heresies that the christ came and inhabited the body of jesus this is a teaching of serenthus that john just absolutely said this is heresy christ appeared in the flesh, Christ or Logos, that is the God that came into Jesus and inhabited him. Uh, and you have what's co commonly called adoptionism. But we, we, this right here, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. How, really, how is it that, that God could be fully man? The, the truth is that doesn't make sense. But when we look at scripture and we're truly fair with it, we read scripture and it's clear. And we're going to see this in, the, in the, this week and next week. He was fully God. He was Yahweh, but he was also fully man. 
and he suffered as we did and was tempted as we did. Do I fully understand that? No. But I'm still going to believe it because scripture teaches it. Do you fully understand how electricity works, Bruno? Fully understand? Even if you were an electrician, you wouldn't. Um, and how does it relate to light? I, mean, I, I, I don't know. Me, Is it light? Is it something different? It's energy? And, you know, God knows. But I'm still going to turn my light switch on, and I'm still going to use that electricity, and I'm going to believe that it's going to work, but I don't have to always fully understand something to know that it works and to know that it is. Okay. Do you fully understand God? Of course not, but we still believe that he is. Okay, so as we go through theology, we always need to come to scripture humbly and not suppose that we're going to fully understand every doctrine because inevitably there will be elements of mystery. And by saying that then, I don't want to back away from trying to fully understand understand scripture, okay? We can't be cowards in that way. However, on the other hand, we must be humble. I'm going to go ahead and have you guys read those four scripture passages, if you would. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else or share my praise with carved idols. Isaiah 42. Thank you. And read your, your address before you read, if you would. Thank you. Next one. 4311. Isaiah 4311. I am the Lord and the Savior. Okay. Isaiah 455. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. Okay. And Jeremiah 106. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. All right. The reason why I'm reading these is because Scripture makes it very clear that there is something so glorious and majestic and awesome about God that he will share his glory with no one. There is no other Savior besides him. There is no other Lord besides him. There is no other God besides him. There is no other Yahweh besides him. Okay, this is absolutely clear. Yet when we move into the New Testament, we're going to struggle with something as we try to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because he is the perfect representation of the Father. He bears the title Savior. But Isaiah says there is no other Savior. We, we worship and glorify Jesus. But God the Father, excuse me, God Yahweh shares his glory with no one. God says that he alone is the Lord, and yet Jesus bears that title. And we're going to look at some of these titles. We have to, we have to either say the Bible is contradictory, or I think the, the clearest conclusion is Jesus had to be God And as Yahweh, who is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, declares there's no other Savior, he is saying there's no other Savior but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no other God but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's no other Yahweh or Lord besides the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to see next week there are six times, minimum six times in the New Testament, in which the New Testament writer quotes from an Old Testament scripture passage using the title or the name Yahweh and then applies it to Jesus. Whoa. 
Share these with your Jehovah's Witness friends. Okay? So what we need to realize is these titles that we receive, uh, they give us a picture of Jesus who is the exact representation of God coming, but he has come in the flesh. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Is there anyone who ever lived who could even begin to say that? No, we would say you're blaspheming, but not Jesus. Though they crucified him for blasphemy, we all know that it was not blasphemy because Jesus was falsely accused and should never have been crucified apart from the fact that it was God's predestined will. Okay? Now, as we look now at, at this concept of titles, what does a title or a name say? What, why is it given? What, what's the significance to us? A title or a name? Stephen? Did you pronounce authority? I'm sorry, say that again. Did you give authority? Well, it shows this person has authority. Okay, all right. Um, sometimes it can do that. The, the name Satan, though, doesn't give Satan authority. What would it do? Uh, not necessarily condemn. It, it's certainly negative because it means accuser or eventually came to mean adversary. But go ahead. Would it set them apart from other people? Okay, in what way? Identifies them. It identifies them. Satan, accuser, okay? Um, the name Michael actually means who is like God, okay? A challenge to me, anyway, I believe, to be more and more like him, okay? Um, the uh, you, Anybody know what your name means? He's brown? Okay, you lived up to that level. Ask of God. Say again. Ask of God. Ask of God. Samuel. L meaning God. Samuel meaning ask of them. Okay. Ask of God. And so, okay, Scott? Richard is powerful ruler. Richard means powerful ruler. All right. Way to go, Sam. I just changed my name to Richard. Yeah, okay. My ruler. Sam? It just means somebody from Scotland. A Scotsman. A Scotsman. All right. Well, that's a that's a proud heritage. All right. Well, good. That's why my name is not Scott, I guess. So the the truth though is that a name should reflect some aspect of a per, of a character or description of a mission or responsibility or declaring who they are. These various things. So when we look at this title, Messiah or Christ, turn with me to Isaiah 61, because here, this isn't the first time this word appears, but here we are going to see the mission of this anointed one. Right, Rusty? The mission of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. So if this definition that Jesus then uses, and, and actually it, it's given several places in Isaiah, but it's this definition of Messiah that Jesus utilizes. Not the Jews' definition of Messiah. Our brother John Hagee was mistaken to suggest that Jesus did not declare himself to be the Messiah or the Christ to the Jews. He, he, he declared it 
definitively in front of the entire Sanhedrin, yes, I am. You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. We're actually a little bit later going to look at that verse. But Jesus did it because this that we're about to read is who he is. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Isaiah 61.1. To preach good news to the, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this is, uh, it moves in parallel or tandem analogously to the year of Jubilee and the day of vengeance of our God. All right, this is his mission. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to bring healing. Um, as it's used in the Septuagint, and Jesus quotes it in, in or Luke quotes it in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And what Luke records is the Septuagint, so it's Greek, and he says to, uh, to give the blind sight. So there's physical healing that's involved in this, and yet there's also spiritual healing that's involved in this. Jesus came to do both as the Messiah. Um, turn to, to Luke 2.11. Actually, uh, don't turn there, but Jesus, or, or the, uh, the angels are proclaiming to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. Okay. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem of Ephrata, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. How clearly should we need to be declared that truth that Jesus is the Christ, the angels declared it, okay? He came as the anointed one to fulfill a mission of healing both physically and spiritually. Now, I'm not going to get too much into that um, because later titles, as we see uh, unfold here, are going to describe more and more of this mission and, as Stephen's pointing out, authority, because there is authority that can be conveyed, not always, but authority that can be conveyed in a, a title, um, turn to Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. This is many times called a messianic psalm. And I need to explain why it's called a messianic psalm, and I'm sure that you're going to see. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, his Mashiach. Or as we say in English, Messiah, because we can't get the Mashiach. Yeah. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let's understand something here. This is referring to David as king, or perhaps as a new king is taking the throne, many times there would be revolts that would need to be quelled in this exchange of kings. Uh, regardless, this initially is spoken of David, and David is God's anointed one. The Holy Spirit anointed three offices. 
Can anyone tell me what those three offices would be? You want to give a stab at it, Juliana? King, priest, and prophet. Okay. King or leader, because it also happened to judges. King or leader, priests, and prophets. And Jesus was all three of these. So in, in, in he was king. He is certainly the prophet we're going to see later. And he was um, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, it says in Hebrews. So Jesus is the anointed one. But the king being an anointed one, this is the context. It's referring to David. He's installed as king on Zion. This would be Jerusalem. And it says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And so we have this idea that Jesus, or excuse me, that David is, is being called a son of the heavenly king. Because he is extending the rule of God on earth. And so he is being called to, he says, today I have become your father. You are my son. Ask of me, I'll give the nations to you. The ends of the earth, your possession, you will rule them with an iron scepter, dash them to pieces like a pot, like pottery, etc. Now, this also, I say, refers to Jesus or the Messiah because David's rule did not extend to the ends of the earth. This isn't just poetry and it's exaggeration. This is fulfilled in Jesus. And we know it is because uh, this passage where it says, you rule them with an iron scepter, dash them to pieces like pottery. I believe it's three times quoted in the New Testament, referring to Jesus. Okay, so, and it is Jesus, therefore, that people will come and bow down to and serve and it is Jesus, if you were, we're not going to do this, but Psalm 72, verses 8 to 11, it is the Messiah, not David so much, partially fulfilled in David, ultimately in the Messiah, in which his rule will extend from sea to sea and from, um, from, the, from the great river to the sea. And we see this huge dynamic rule that the Messiah will fulfill. And I believe that it will be fulfilled in what's commonly called the Messianic Age or the Church Age or the, this age, whatever term you want to use. And so we will see the gospel explode. But it is not a political rule because that's not your job, the job of the Messiah, is it? It is a spiritual rule. And it's Jesus ruling on the throne in heaven, extending his rule here on earth. So this is a description of the Messiah. Son of man. Any idea why Jesus used this term? And this was the, the title that Jesus most frequently used for himself. Any, any idea why Jesus would use this particular title for himself? Any thoughts? Bruno? This is uh, usually... Every single Jew would know that it would have been the prophecy from Daniel seven thirteen. Okay. And the coming in the cloud of glory, and so when Jesus said that, which he also repeated it when he was questioned by the same high priest. Okay. That's what they actually deemed the heresy that he proclaimed. Okay. And I'm going to respond to that by giving you a definitive yes and no. 
And here's why I say this. Because it was used even more frequently by Ezekiel. God called him, O son of man, do this. And so there would be a sense of confusion. Is he just talking about himself being a prophet like Ezekiel? Or is there something more special like Daniel 7? But he wouldn't be declaring himself to be that guy, would he? And so there would be this sense of confusion. And so that's why people, we're going to look at the title later uh, as far as what the prophet was. But so I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to also say no, because I would venture to say that most people would not immediately make that connection to Daniel 7. It's a passage we're going to look at later concerning the Son of Man, um, because, wow, that would almost be like Jesus declaring, hey, by the way, I am God. Um, It would almost be tantamount to that. And so Jesus uh, spoke this title rather enigmatically. But he used it to apply to himself in both ways. The way it's used in Ezekiel and the way it's used in Daniel 7. Okay? So, we, we see this and you see the passage there, uh, Ezekiel 2.1. And that's just an example. There's many, 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 many times in which Daniel, uh, Ezekiel is referred to as the Son of Man. And it also is a title that allows Jesus to emphasize his connection with mankind. The other title that would be in contrast to that would be Son of God. And as Son of God, the title is used both by him and others, especially in John, but throughout the Gospels, fair enough, to show his affinity or his connection with God. Son of man, his affinity or connection with man. And as we, as the theology of who Jesus is develops in the New Testament, and can I say, is very much developed just in the Gospels, okay? We don't have some progressive revelation that John the Apostle didn't know that Jesus was God. Um, um, Bart Ehrman um, has a book out, and I'm trying to remember the title, and forgive me, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it is something along the lines of uh, Jesus... Um, well, something along that Jesus becoming God. And in the minds of the early church, he started off merely as a miracle worker, a man, a prophet, and then over time, people began to deify him into the 100s, declaring him to be God. And so Bart Ehrman, since he's an extreme liberal, his goal is to dash this idea that Jesus is God. And Bart Ehrman does not follow the script scripture in any way even the gospels right off the bat make it clear that jesus is god Mm -hmm. so back to the title son of man um in let's go ahead and look at daniel 7 Can I just preface this reading with this comment? I think we need to be fair to Jesus, that he was not in any way trying to be deceptive with people and for that reason didn't share so much that he was the Messiah. He absolutely was. People had a misconception of 
what that Messiah was supposed to be, even John the Baptist. Um, and I believe I do have that. I, I meant to read it and I didn't. Um, Matthew eleven two to 6, John is in prison and he hears what the Christ or what Christ was doing. He sends some of his disciples. Are you the one that we are to be looking for or we should be looking for another? This is John the Baptist. But see, even John the Baptist did not have this divine revelation of exactly who Jesus or the Messiah that he was preceding would accomplish. And, and so I, I see what you're doing, Jesus. You're stirring up opposition. Where are you going with this? Have I been wrong? And Jesus says, hang on a second to those disciples of John. And he says, what do you see me doing? The blind are being healed, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached. I, in essence, I am doing exactly what I need to be doing as the Messiah. The disciples of John sent back that word. So Jesus doesn't go around declaring himself to be God, declaring himself to be Messiah. People would have crucified him within his first year of ministry. And Jesus knew he had to minister for some three and a half years. How is he going to, in all fairness to Jesus, how is he going to do this? On the other hand, Jesus wants to be rather enigmatic in how he reveals himself so that people's curiosity would be pricked and they would want to press in to know him more. This is the very purpose for parables. It's both to reveal truth, but to conceal it from those like the Pharisees didn't really care to know. They were just so concerned that Jesus was saying something wrong, like healing on the Sabbath and believing that was okay. And he blew their belief system out of the water as a result. They didn't like this. So Jesus, in all fairness, is preaching and proclaiming who he is and doing so with words and actions so that ultimately he would have the opportunity to minister in numerous towns, cities throughout Israel, and then after three, three and a half, however many years, be crucified and raised from the dead. Not within his first year of ministry. And, and Jesus is wanting people to seek him. What do you mean by son of man? Who are you? He asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? Okay? He wanted them to search and to seek. Okay? Um, Daniel 7. So we have here in verse 13, it says, In my vision, Daniel's vision, at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. God in heaven is the only king, and yet Jesus is being declared here as king. Okay? Do you see that? He's given a kingdom, a dominion. That makes him king. And he extends this kingdom throughout the earth. Okay, so this is what Jesus came to do. And as you move now to Matthew 26, here we see Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin on trial. 
and they ask him very point blank, are you the Messiah? Matthew 26, 63. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Interesting that they would couple these two titles together. There was some understanding on their part as far as the Messiah or the Christ. Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say. But I say to you, in the future you will see who? The Son of Man, not the Son of God. Yes, the Son of God, but purposely using the title Son of Man because he's referring to Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Son of Man, coming on the clouds, being ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days. That is the immediate picture that Jesus is clearly giving here and the Sanhedrin knows this The high priest tears his robe and he says he's blasphemed. Okay? So Jesus' ministry on earth is now being wrapped up. He's going to be led away to the cross. His time has come. He's made it very clear who he is. Okay? He's also the son of God. Mark 3.11. I'm only going to refer to that. But as Jesus is casting out the... The demon and the man who is manifesting in the temple, excuse me, in the synagogue, the demon inside of him declares, You are the Son of God. What does Jesus do? Thank you. Can we just applaud this? He spi- the, the demon speaks truth. Very rare, by the way, for a demon to do, but he declares, You are the Son of God. Um, in other places, have you come here to torment us early? They know that Jesus is going to be sending them eventually to hell for eternal punishment. Well, the demon got it right, but Jesus says in so many words in Aramaic, shut up. Okay? (laughs) He says, I don't want you talking anymore. Because Jesus did not, not, again, it's not that Jesus is trying to be deceptive or anything like this. He's got three years of ministry left. Let's tone this down. I don't want you to speak, so be quiet, speak no more, and stop declaring who I am. I need people to seek me to find out who I am. This, is, this was Jesus' ministry. This is why he healed, and people sought after, tell us more, tell us more. Who are you? What have you come to do? Okay, and Jesus began teaching more and more of himself. And many times Jesus would answer questions with questions because he wanted people searching and seeking. He didn't want to just give all of the answers and make it simple. He needed people to seek. And so he tells the demon, quiet, no more. But the demon confesses the truth. He is the son of God. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or his only begotten son. This is the heritage of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've had opportunities to talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, you will find at this point them saying, see, Jesus is the Son. He is separate from the Father. See, the Father and the Son. Can I tell you, when you hear about uh, Simon Peter, Bar-Jonas, or Jonah, why do they say Bar-Jonah, meaning son of Jonah? Why Why would they describe his full name that way? Can 
It identifies him, makes it clear where his bloodline is. This is his heritage. This is who he is from. Isn't this Jesus, son of the carpenter? Carpenter's a lowly job. Carpenter's not a rabbi or a priest, and yet, where did this guy get his wisdom? You see? Your heritage is of a carpenter, and yet you're portraying yourself as this incredibly wise rabbi. We don't get it. And so the Nazarenes rejected him, most of them. When, when, you, when Peter was saying Bar-Jonas, Bar-Jonas, or by Bar, son of Jonah, he, meet, he is trying to show his affinity, his connection with his father. He's not trying to show the difference between his father from, from himself, but he wants to show he is of the same bloodline, of the same heritage, of the same essence, if you will. This is the purpose for Jesus' title, Son of God. It is not to show how different he is from the Father. On the contrary, it's to show how similar he is to the Father and actually of the same essence. Son of God. All right, now we're going to get into Jesus' deity next week, but here is a title that some people have used to try and show the disparity or the dissimilarity between the Son and the Father, and the exact opposite was Jesus' intention with this title, Son of God. So Son of Man, affinity with man, Son of God, affinity with God himself. God and man, fully God and man, fully God, fully man in this person of Jesus. So the, 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 again, purposes of these titles. Savior, Luke 2, 11, for anyone who was born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I've got about 15 more minutes here, or 20, and I, I need to hurry. So, um, Jesus is Savior. What are the implications? When, when those shepherds heard Jesus, the Son, is a Savior, kind of shed your 20th century or 21st century thinking perspective of the Bible and such. Try and go back to that first century, being a Jew. That might be hard, but when you're a Jewish shepherd and you're hearing a son, a, a, a baby has been born and he is the Savior, what? That implies that he's going to save somebody from something. Mm-hmm. What would he save us from? Okay, save us from Rome, very possible. This idea of salvation from sin, it's not that it's not in the Old Testament. We obviously see sacrifices. But, and, and as you look in Isaiah 53, it's not in the notes here, but in Isaiah 53, Jesus is called a guilt offering or a sin offering. All It says in Isaiah 53, 6, that... Uh, but the Father has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquities of us all. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus that he's referring to. So this idea of salvation or being saved from our sins is there, but it's not fully revealed. And now as we start moving into the New Testament, we see this Jesus being born. He is called a Savior. Then the angel appears to Joseph and he says, call him Jesus, which is in Arab, which is in Hebrew, Yahashua, or Yeshua, or in English, Joshua. It means salvation or savior. 
Okay, what does this mean? The angel in the vision to Joseph says, call him Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So even before he's born, Joseph, not all of the Jews, just Joseph, and I'm sure he shared it with Mary, was told he will be savior because he will save his people from their sins. Okay. Um, Matthew, that's Matthew one twenty one. In John one twenty nine, now Jesus has been baptized by John. And John sees him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. There right, that, that right there is a Reader's Digest version of the gospel, the good news. This Jesus didn't come to save us from Roman rule. He came to save us from our sins. And this is, this is just highly unusual that no one ever lived. Only God is Savior and now someone else is Savior. Because this person who is Savior, who is Jesus, is God. But he has come to save us from our sins. A very foreign concept to the peoples. Okay, save us from their sins. Do you mean that he's going to preach repentance and will repent and in that way save us from our sins? They, they truly did not understand fully how Jesus would save them from their sins until the cross and resurrection were completed. Then Jesus began to open their minds and they began to understand all that was written about him. Okay? But before then, it, before then, it was hazy. Okay, you're going you're gonna to allow the, high pri- the, the priests, the chief priests to crucify you and rise on the third day. And, and what? And where are you going with it? They didn't understand all of this. So we, we see then in Jesus' ministry a development of this idea that he is going to be Savior. And then the climax of every gospel is the cross and the resurrection. Now we see that ultimate fulfillment. Actually, in the gospel according to John, from chapters 1 through 12 is Jesus' ministry, and chapters 13 through 21 is Passion Week. Okay, that's almost 50% of the gospel is focused on one week. Because it's in that one week that John the Baptist declaration, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is portrayed and fleshed out and and revealed. Okay, this is how he's going to be Savior of the world. All right. So save us from what? Save us from our sins. Um, John 4.42 very interesting that as Jesus is developing his ministry, this is very early on, he speaks with the Samaritan woman and he takes a few days and he, he ministers to, to those in um, Sukkar, I believe it is. And they began to say, you know, we're not just believing, saying to the Samaritan woman, we're not only believing in this Jesus because you told us, because, but now we ourselves have heard him. And he says, we no longer, verse 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said, 
But now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is. They don't say Messiah. That's the, that's the term that she used in their, at the end of their conversation. Now they're understanding Jesus to be more than just Messiah, political ruler, whatever, perhaps not sure, but Savior of the world. Now, I'm not saying they understood the cross and resurrection. But of all people, the Samaritans are, are starting to call him Savior of the world. They get it. And, and there are no miracles that are recorded here. Jesus just teaches them. And the Samaritans of all people get it. Then he goes on and he has to do more miracles uh, in the remainder of the chapter. And they still don't get it, who Jesus is. My hat's off to the Samaritans. Even in their blindness, they were able to find the truth by God's grace. Amen? So, um, Jesus is the prophet. I, I'm, I'm only going to be touching on this briefly, but if you were to go to Deuteronomy 18, so, I mean, let's do that. Deuteronomy 18. We see that there is another prophet going to be even greater than Moses, but another prophet that will come onto the scene declaring truth. Um, we're going to see in John 1, if, if you had a chance to, is that written? Yeah, John 1, 21 and 25, that the chief priests, the Jews, the leaders approaching John the Baptist, they ask him, are you the prophet? And he says, no, I am not. So by John's time, John the Baptist's time, there was an understanding that one would come who would be called Messiah, one would come who would be called King of Israel or the stump or root of Jesse or son of David, that, he, that a, one would come who would be called the prophet. I mean, did they understand fully these terms? I'm sure they didn't. But it comes from this passage that Moses gives them in Deuteronomy 18, and I'm going to read to you verse 15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. How very sad that when this prophet that did come, Jesus did come, and he was certainly more than just a typical prophet, but when he came, did the Jews listen? For the most part, they did not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so Jesus is this prophet that is prophesied of. In verse 19, it says, If anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. And 40 years later, God called the entire city of Jerusalem that rejected Jesus to account. 40 years later, 78 day. It's just so important. Um, I, I want us to just spend a little bit of time on this last title. We're actually going to develop it a little bit more next week. But this is an extremely significant title. Again, Luke 2.11. For unto you was born to stay in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right. 
This title, Lord, is used in the Old Testament, as you can see in your notes, Ha-Adonai. Ha-Adonai. That means the Lord. Only Yahweh, the Almighty God in heaven, had that title. He was the only one. And yet, as we move into the New Testament, Jesus readily accepts this title. He is the Lord. Now, when it says in, in Romans 10, go ahead, um, go ahead and turn to Romans 10, 9. In Romans 10, 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me just say that this is more than just saying Jesus is master. All right? It is, number one, it is declaring what you truly believe in your heart, that he is not just the master, but my master. Okay? And so there's something personal about this. But it is also saying that Jesus is the Lord. He is Ha-Adonai. In the Greek, it's Ha-Kurios. Jesus is Lord. He is, the, the word Kurios can mean sir or master. However, as, it, as Jesus accepts this title, it is more than just a, a term of, of reverence uh, that you might give to a king. Yes, my Lord. Jesus wasn't just called my Lord. He was called the Lord throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. The Lord. And so this is a declaration that not only is Jesus my master, but he is God and my God. The famous declaration of Thomas the doubter, when Jesus said, here, feel my hands thrust Thrust your hand into my side where the sword was pierced his side and, and stop doubting. And Thomas fell down and he declared to Jesus, by the way, it's to Jesus, not to, he didn't look up and say, my Lord and my God. He, to Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God, you are my master and you are my God. Jesus did not turn to Thomas and say, Thomas, come on, dude. This is why they crucified me. They thought I was blaspheming, trying to declare myself to be God. And you don't get it yet? Come on, man, get on the stick. Why don't you get it? Did Jesus reject his title? Absolutely not. Blessed are you, Thomas. But more blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He commended him for this. But it is this sense of my Lord and my God, all right? And you get this sense of my master, that Lord means, and my God, that the title the Lord conveys. Do you follow what I'm saying here? 
I, I, we have just a few minutes, and I want to delve into this passage right here. And I want you to take some, some notes here. I have a lot of lines uh, through this because I want us to follow who Paul is talking about here when he uses Lord and when he uses the pronoun him. It's going to be very important that we understand exactly who he is talking about. And I want you to, to take notes here because there, there may come a time in which people are going to sit down with you and they're going to say what liberal theology says. No, Jesus was a good man and he attained divinity. But by that, we just simply mean that he was a really good guy. He was like the closest to God that a man can get. So what do we do? We give him the term divinity. He, was, he achieved divinity. So that doesn't mean he became God in liberal theology. It just means he, he was a really, really good guy. Um, or you can talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, and they will completely deny the deity of Christ. This verse makes it so crystal clear that Jesus is, and I'm going to use the specific term Jehovah's Witnesses use, he is God Almighty. Because as we get into it, they make a distinction between Jesus is God or a God, but then the Father is God Almighty. Jesus here clearly is God Almighty. He is Yahweh. Do you have a question? Yeah. Okay, yes. How come in the verse they didn't translate it as Jesus is the Lord? Because the prone, the definite article is not there. Now, in Greek, you don't always have to have the definite article to supply the word the. But it's... So, it's hoti kirion. Wouldn't hoti be hope? Hot, hoti? Hoti? Um, hoti kirion? Hoti means therefore. I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, the definite article is not in this, but that does not mean that Jesus is, n- is not the Lord. Okay, by saying Jesus is Lord, they are conveying this concept that he is the Lord. He is the Ha'adonai of the Old Testament. Okay, here's how how we know this. Follow me now. Okay, so he moves on in verse 10 and it says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's... Be fair here in, in how this is structured. Who is him in this verse? Is God the Father in view here? Or is Jesus in view here? Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the only focus here. To introduce God the Father would be out of context. Okay? Um, it refers to God raising him from the dead, but the focus is still Jesus, him, being raised from the dead. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him, that is anyone who trusts in Jesus, will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. Who is Lord here? Is it God the Father or Jesus the Son? It must be Jesus the Son. We don't see any breaking away to start focusing on the Father. It would be unfair to say suddenly here he is referring to the Father being Lord because the whole focus here is Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm going to explain to you in a minute why I'm, why I'm doing what I'm doing and trying to focus on this 
So we see that him in verse 11 is Jesus and that the same Lord is Lord of all refers to Jesus and richly blesses all who call on him. All who call on who? Jesus or God the Father? Let's be specific here. The context tells us Jesus. This is important. All who call on Jesus. All right? He is now going to give us a verse to substantiate this. And he gives us Joel 2.32. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who is the Lord in this context? Is it Jesus or is it God the Father? It must be Jesus because him, those who call on him, is Jesus. We've seen the focus is completely on Jesus, has never switched to the Father It's all on Jesus. Those who call on him will be saved. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage, Joel 2.32, to back this up. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Someone read to me Joel 2.32. Anybody real quickly? Joel 2.32. Let me quote it for you. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you go there and you read it, Tell me, how is the word Lord spelled? Yahweh. L-O-R-D. All capitals. Why does the Old Testament put this particular word, Lord, instead of capital L, small case O, small case R, small case D, which is Adonai? Why is it all caps? Because it's Yahweh. It is the covenantal name Yahweh. And here... Paul makes it absolutely clear that those who call in the name of Jesus will be saved. But here, he uses the name Yahweh. Do you see then the implications? Paul is saying Jesus is Yahweh. This is one of six passages, a minimum of six passages, quoted in the New Testament from the Old. And that Old Testament passage is speaking of Yahweh, and here... And in others, Paul applies that name Yahweh to Jesus. Okay? So, Philippians 2.11, and I'm going to conclude with this. I've got one more minute. And then what we're going to do is we're going to break up into groups for prayer ministry. Philippians chapter 2.11. Some of you may even have this passage memorized. Awesome, awesome passage. Yeah. Also, for those who like want to share with the Jehovah's Witness, the term where it says everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. I believe that's a quotation from Isaiah 28 and 16, which also has this connotation of Yahweh in it too. Okay. And, and how does it go again, that particular it's, passage? It says everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. And that's also in context when you go to Isaiah 28 and 16, Good. it says everyone who believes on him shall not be and, and what passage in the New Testament is that? That's the one we were just looking at. Uh, Will not be put to shame? Yeah. If you read... Okay, read read further on. Right, so... It was one of the ones that we read. Yeah, so I think it's, it's Romans like 10, 11. 10 or 11, yeah. Yeah, 10, 11 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a direct quotation from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Okay. And if you start at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 28, it says, For Yahweh, the Lord... Mm-hmm. And it goes on and says, for the word of the Lord thus says, right. everyone who believes in him. Okay, good. So that's further substantiation. 
Okay, excellent. So two passages in the Old Testament he gives that refer to Yahweh, but here he's applying them to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Good, thank you. Um, In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name, this is referring to Jesus, gave him a name that is above every name. And what name is that? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, can I just say this, that Jesus had to experience the cross and the resurrection to prophetically fulfill that name Jesus. So now being exalted, he doesn't just have that name, he lived that name, he became that name in essence. Okay, he, he fulfilled what his name meant, Savior, that is Savior of the world. And so because Jesus, I mean, Jesus could have been called Lord before, but now by humbling himself, doing the Father's will, triumphing over sin and death so that they eventually become his footstool, as Hebrews says, he, he, in essence, earns that title of Jesus and earns that, or name Jesus and earns that title of Lord. So Jesus had to come to this earth, suffer under just the, the human frailty that we all experience, die on the cross, be raised from the dead, thus declaring, Romans 1, 4 says, himself to be the son of God. And as he's exalted, he has earned that rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Now, that was his regardless. But he chose now to earn that. Okay? And so, by doing that then, he, he receives this name that is above every name. It is not just Joshua like we see in the Old Testament. His name was Yeshua or Yahashua or Jesus. But this Jesus, this Yeshua, earned that name, earned that title, and by his death and resurrection became savior of all. And for this reason, not just because he's God, but because he did all that he did in taking on human flesh, suffering, learning obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews says, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, now exalted to the right hand of the Father, every knee, for this reason, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay? So I want us to see that he was given that name. He was given it at birth, yes, but when he, was, when he died and rose from the dead and successfully, if you will, became the Savior of the world through what he accomplished on earth, then he, he fulfilled that, and that name Jesus now takes on tremendously greater meaning. It's not just a name that he was born with, but he has actually become our Savior. Scott. Just, just uh, a little bit more detail on that is in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22 as well. Yes, his, what they call more. his session, being seated at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. And this is what is described, by the way, in Daniel 7. Jesus coming in the clouds. He ascended in the clouds 
And Daniel 7 doesn't say that he was coming to earth in the clouds. That would give us a picture of his second coming. But he was, but he was approaching the Ancient of Days in the clouds. That is, as, he, as the disciples saw him rise into heaven on the clouds, he took those clouds, rode them in, if you will, into the heaven before the throne of the Ancient of Days. And this is then the vision that Daniel has of Jesus right before Jesus' session. And because he earned that title of Savior, and therefore he, Jesus, is Lord, then all the kingdoms were given to him. All right? And and that's what we see happening in, in Daniel 7. And all nations, as a result of this, what Jesus accomplished for our salvation, for this reason, that's why all the nations are gathered around him and worship him. Okay. I need to close in prayer and then I'm going to have us divide up into small groups. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that Jesus has come to be the anointed one and to, to suffer, to, to heal, to, uh, to heal spiritually, to raise the dead, both physically and spiritually. Thank you, Jesus, that you accomplished all these things, that you were the the Son of God who came in the flesh and became as one of us, and you were the Son of Man, and you have ascended on high, and you have accomplished eternal salvation for us. And every knee, as a result, will bow before that name, Jesus, because Jesus, and Jesus alone, is Lord. None other. No other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And I just thank you, Father, for sending your son Jesus for all that he's accomplished for our salvation. We are, our hearts are thoroughly one. You have conquered sin and death in, in our lives. You've made us alive in you, Jesus. You've rescued us not just some from some political rule. You have rescued us from the despair and the bondage of sin. And you've made us new creatures. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, uh, very simply, I want you to get into groups of three tonight. And I just, I, I, I want you, it doesn't have to be all guys or all girls, but just groups of three. And I want you to... Um, share a specific, at least one prayer request, and, and understand we've got only 15 minutes, so one prayer request, uh, more if, there's, if they're like really important, we don't want to shut you down if you've got some real serious prayer needs, but let's minister to one another, okay? Um, and if you want to just kind of group a little bit together to share those needs, that would be perfect. Um, great. Great.